Hey guys, it's good to be with you all tonight. I'm excited. I get to cross something off my bucket list. always wanted to preach in a Halloween costume. And uh, in case you're wondering, I'm not a librarian or Bill Nye the Science Guy. I am Fear from Inside Out. And the rest of the staff, you can look around at Amanda and Lauren. We, uh, we are the inside characters from Inside Out. So just wanted to explain that. And uh, stick around for... Uh, the Halloween contest after the after the benediction. We need your input because it'll be a popular vote. So, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus minister with RUF. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, I would love to get to know you. We're really glad that you're here. Um, in keeping with the Halloween theme tonight, uh, we're actually going to be covering a spooky topic uh, because we're going to be talking about suffering. And uh, joking aside, suffering. It really is scary to talk about. Um, it's a painful, heavy topic, and yet we really do need to talk about it because we all experience it. And as we'll see from our passage tonight, the Bible actually talks about it. Um, before we pray and jump into First Thessalonians two, um, there's one thing I want to do, and and it's because su- uh, suffering is such a difficult subject. I just want to hit you with the gospel right up front, right off the bat. And so here it is. The gospel says that there's nothing that God can't use to accomplish his plan of redemption. Or to put it positively, God can use anything to bring about your salvation and the renewal of the entire universe. Um, He can take any thread of your story, no matter how painful or damaged or frayed and weave it into his tapestry of redemption. So what I'm saying is he can even use your suffering um, to bring about his good plan and his good purposes for you and for us. So with that hope in mind, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask for his help. So would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, um, all of us here tonight have experienced suffering in one form, one form or another. Uh, in fact, some of us might be in the middle of suffering and so we all need to hear from you, and uh, we ask that you would speak to us tonight uh, tender words of comfort and of hope. And so would you open up our hearts and minds to your healing grace and meet us through your word and spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2009, when I was still a student here at Davidson, Dr. Bart Ehrman came to give a series of lectures over in the Lilly Gallery in Chambers. And for those of you who don't know who Bart Ehrman is, who Dr. Ehrman is, he's a professor of New Testament at UNC Chapel Hill. He's also uh, an author of a lot of uh, several New York Times bestselling books, including Misquoting Jesus and Jesus Interrupted. His area of scholarship is in several fields, New Testament textual criticism, basically taking a critical look at the New Testament text, um, the historical Jesus, and also the origins and development of early Christianity. So that, that's Dr. Ehrman. Davidson had the school that invited him to come and give the Maloney Ots Symposium lectures. And the school made the lectures open to the public so that anyone could come. And with name, like the two lectures, he named them, um, Is the New Testament Confused? Question mark. And is the New Testament forged? Question mark. 
And so with names like that, you can imagine that it drew quite a crowd, both of students and faculty, but also uh, a crowd from the, from the broader community. And in between those two lectures that er Dr. Ehrman gave, he left the time for question and answer. And so I remember, I think it was a th late on a Thursday night, probably like 9.30 or 10, there's an older gentleman, probably in his 70s, that stood up during that Q&A time. And he said, he asked, Dr. Ehrman, uh, well, he, he started by making a comment or an observation. Dr. Ehrman, you are clearly a highly intelligent man. You've clearly studied the Bible. You know the Bible in and out. Uh, why don't you believe it? Like, why is it that you don't believe in, in the Bible? And why is it that you're not a Christian? And instead of him giving an academic or a philosophical or an intellectual answer to that older gentleman's question, uh, Dr. Ehrman actually told a story. He told his story. He said, he, he, he said to the man and to everyone who was listening, he said, well, I grew up in the church. Um, and actually, like when I was a teenager, I would identify as an evangelical Christian or even like a fundamentalist Christian. Um, and he said, I even went to Moody and then on to Wheaton to study the Bible because I wanted to know it better. And he said, at some point during my graduate studies, I, I became and he used this word, he, he said, I became more of a progressive Christian. That is, I no longer believed the Bible to be God's inspired word, but I still believed in a God. I still went to church. Um, I, I still would say, you know, yes, God exists. There's, there's a God. And then he went on. He said, however, several years after that, I ended up walking away from the church and from Christ, the Christian faith entirely. And here's what's really fascinating about Dr. Ehrman's story, and this is why I bring this up. He said the reason that he left the church and that he gave up Christian faith, again, it's not because of anything like that he discovered in his studies, in his academic studies, but rather it was because of this long, his long ongoing struggle with the problem of suffering, which was initially philosophical. It was a philosophical problem for him that he just couldn't wrap his mind around but it became a personal problem as he encountered suffering in his own life. And so as he described it, this, the, as he described the, the problem, he looked at that older man and basically said, look, I had always asked this question, how can a good, all-powerful God allow pain and suffering and evil in the world, this world that he supposedly created and cares about? And he said, at some point in the midst of my own suffering, I realized he can't. Therefore, he must not exist. And then ever since then, I've been an agnostic. And so Dr. Ehrman's story that night, it, it's both beautifully honest, but also terribly sobering at the same time. And it highlights for us the importance of Paul's words here in our passage this evening, because he's writing to a group of Christians who are smacking up against the problem of suffering. And like with Dr. Ehrman, this, the, the Thessalonians' problem with suffering is not philosophical, but it's actually really personal. It's actually hitting them in real time and real space. It's, it's real, it's visceral, it's tangible. And so Paul knows this about the Thessalonians, and he's, he, he, I mean, he knows that they're experiencing suffering. If you have your handout in front of you, you can just look at um, chapter 2, verse 14, um, to, to see that Paul is aware of the suffering that is going on. Um, and you can also look at, look ahead at verse, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. And from those 
particular verses in this whole passage in general, we see that Paul writes to encourage them, these Thessalonians, and then also to encourage us with this very important truth. Suffering is the mark of a Christian. Suffering is the mark of a Christian. And although it's true that everyone experiences suffering, both Christian and non-Christian alike, the Christian is that person, that man or that woman who suffers with hope, who endures and even embraces to some extent suffering and takes and entrusts their suffering to Jesus. And so that's, that's how suffering is the mark of a Christian. And we're really going to see this play out in three ways. And I think you have that in front of you as well. So first, we're going to see that a Christian suffers for God's word. Secondly, that he, a Christian, he or she suffers alongside friends. And then finally, that a Christian suffers in the Lord. So first, how does a Christian suffer for God's word? Um, if you look at those first couple of verses in your handout, verses like 13 through 16, Paul teaches that when you accept the Bible as God's word, you're actually inviting opposition and even persecution. You're inviting persecution. Look what he says. Look what he tells the Thessalonians in, in verse 14. He basically says to them, look, guys, you're receiving the same exact treatment from your own Greek neighbors, your own countrymen, as those Jewish Christians received from the Jewish religious leaders over in Judea. He says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then later on in, in, ver- in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds the Thessalonians to actually expect to suffer for God's word, that it's actually the norm, that it's the mark of a Christian. And so here's, here's a question that I want to pose, uh, pose for you or, or pose you. Um, if you and I are not suffering the same sort of persecution that Paul and the Thessalonians suffered, does that mean that we're not a Christian or that we're not Christians? No. I would say no. I, th- I think the Bible says no. Just because we're not persecuted to the same degree that those early Christians were persecuted, just because we're not being thrown in jail or killed uh, for our faith, doesn't mean that we don't experience persecution. When one of your family members doesn't understand and starts to question your love for God and his word. Or when one of your classmates or a roommate or a friend of yours or a teammate, um, when they find out that you enjoy going to Bible studies or Tuesday night large group with this organization called RUF, when they give you that look and you're like, RUF, is that that weird like religious thing that you do? Or maybe when a professor seeks to discredit the Bible's authority and reliability in the middle of a class lecture. We experience a form of suffering for God's word, a form of persecution that's different in degree, but I would argue not different in kind. And so when you or I experience like pushback from parents for believing in the Bible or raised eyebrows from peers or challenges from professors, what we see here is that we shouldn't be surprised, uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed, that that's actually to be expected, that that's the norm. And this isn't just like, like some dour Pauline theology. Like this is, this is exactly what Jesus taught his followers himself. You might remember, you know, he told his disciples things like, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice he doesn't say, blessed are you if others revile you. He says, blessed are you when 
others revile you. It's a given. That's Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. And then in John's gospel, he says to his disciples, look, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus himself promised that if we follow him, if we trust his word, we will experience suffering and persecution for his sake and for the word's sake. And so before we move on to the next point, I just want to say this. One of the major, I think, one of the major weaknesses of 21st century American Protestant Christianity is that we don't have a biblically robust theology of suffering. And I get it. I understand why we don't. We're living in such a prosperous, like a material, materially and financially prosperous country. Um, and we're so far removed, even with, even with the internet, we're, we're still so far removed from the suffering that Christians experience in other parts of the world that we don't, know, we don't really know what to do when suffering or persecution arises. We, we haven't worked that out in our faith. And just as a little bit of an aside, I didn't realize this, what I'm about to share until recently, but more Christians have died for their faith in the last century than in all other centuries combined. That to me is staggering. And it's something like, the estimates are like 26 million Christians died for their faith in the 20th century, so from 1900 to 2000. And like estimates, I don't know how they get this figure, but, but folks estimate that only 14 only but 14 million gave up their lives for the faith from like 33 AD until 1900. So to kind of bring this kind of to our context, I think we can say that we do non-Christians a disservice um, when, we, when we act like becoming a Christian will only make life better and when we hide from them the cost of following Jesus. I'm not saying like in sharing the gospel with someone, you need to lead with, hey, guess what? You're going to get persecuted for this and you're going to suffer. Come be a Christian. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying we, we don't necessarily need to shy away from persecution or, for some, for, or, for, or from suffering either. We don't need to be embarrassed by it. It's actually a mark of being a Christian. And so um, Jesus promised it. We should expect it. And this brings us to our next point. We should share it with others. So look at, um, let's look at and, and see, look at the passage and see how a Christian suffers alongside friends. Um, a number of New Testament scholars and theologians have referred to Paul as, as having a genius for friendship, a genius for friendship. And uh, I think we see that on display really in verses 17 of chapter 2 through verse 5 of, of, of chapter 3. I think this section is, is really rich in the language of friendship. And I just want to highlight a few of these, um, few of these things. So look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Um, there we see that Paul is eager to see the Thessalonians face-to-face. He's got this desire to be physically with them and to see them. That, that gets repeated throughout the rest of the passage in chapter 3. Um, and then a few verses later in verses 19 and 20, we see Paul demonstrating this deep joy and love uh, in relationship with the Thessalonians. Again, a theme that gets repeated later on in chapter 3. And then finally, we see in in the first three verses of chapter 3 that Paul's got this longing to see the Thessalonians' faith in Jesus grow and develop and flourish. That's how much he cares about, about these Christians. 
And so what this shows us is that Paul knew the importance of genuine friendship in the midst of suffering. He knew that Christians have an enemy who loves to take our suffering and tempt us, you can look at verse 5, tempt us toward isolation. And, and that's what Paul is, is, is worried against, worried, worried about, and is concerned about, uh, that, that the enemy wouldn't isolate believers in the, midst of their, in, the, in the midst of their suffering and convince them that they're alone. To whisper, into the, to whisper lies into their ears, lies like, no one sees you. No one, no one really cares about you. You're on your own here. Paul is, is reminding the Thessalonians and us that Christians, a mark of Christianity is that, that we suffer alongside friends. Um, and so what he, what he knows is that with friends, our suffering is not only bearable, it actually opens up doors to intimacy and relationship. But without friends to support and encourage and be present with us in the midst of our suffering, it's impossible not to become discouraged or depressed or even tempted to despair over suffering. That's how important friendship is. A number of years ago, during my last year of seminary and then my first year out of seminary um, in St. Louis, uh, I helped lead a, a nursing home chapel ministry at this place called Bove Manor in St. Louis. And um, shortly after I started leading this ministry, I met a woman an elderly woman named Marcy Coffey. Her last name is actually Coffey. Marcy Coffey. Um, Marcy uh, was an elderly widow. Uh, she used to be a small business owner. Um, didn't have any kids of her own, so she didn't really have any visitors to come visit, visit at the nursing home. And uh, before I share this story about Marcy that I'm about to share, two things to know just about Beauvais Manor, the nursing home in general. One is that everyone there is experiencing suffering. There's no one in that nursing home that's not suffering from something. And then two, I realized this early on, residents with friends actually end up doing a lot better than those without friends. And, and sometimes that, that can describe one person. And so here's, here's what I want to share with you about Marcy. One, more, one Sunday morning, I noticed that Marcy wasn't, at, wasn't in the chapel for the service. And that was unusual. So I went rode the elevator up to her floor, got out, and kind of as I got near her hallway, I started hearing some screaming and yelling for help. So I turn into her hallway, the, the yelling gets louder, I turn into her room, and I, I, I can tell that it's coming from her room. And so Miss Coffey's in her room, lying on her bed, screaming, yelling for help, crying, because she had been awake for over an hour, but no one had come to her to help her get out of bed and use the bathroom and go get breakfast. And during that time, she, she couldn't hold it, and so she ended up having an accident and wetting herself and wetting the bed, and who knows how long she had been just laying there, wet and cold and alone. And so I went over to her, uh, next to her, and told her I was gonna help her but she was sobbing and hysterical. And I'll never forget, she said, um, she said, she looked at me and she said, why am I still here? I just wanna die. Like, why? I don't, wanna, I don't wanna have to put up with this, this kind of suffering. Like you can imagine just how embarrassed she was and she felt and how much shame and, and 
well, to, to kind of wrap this story up, I, I helped her get out of bed, got her into her wheelchair, helped her get into the bathroom. Um, she didn't end up coming to the service, understandably so, but um, what I want to share about, about her is this. Over the next several months, I noticed, I started noticing some changes in Marcy. Uh, when she would be at chapel, which was becoming more and more regular, I found her talking more and more to the other residents that were sitting near her and actually like trying to be helpful to them and ask questions and get to know them. And like she still, she still suffered. I mean, she still had her dementia that didn't go away, but her appearance had started to change, like her countenance, like she started to smile more and laugh a bit. And she wasn't saying things like, why am I still here? I'd rather die. And so what I, what I want us to see is that Marcy's friends, the friendships that she started developing, it hadn't taken away her suffering or dementia, but they did help her to endure it. And th- those friends even helped her find some joy even in the midst of her suffering. And so I don't know exactly what kind of suffering you've experienced in life or what sorts of suffering that is going on now in this room. Um, Maybe you're grieving the loss of a relationship. Uh, Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a dream. Uh, Maybe you're discouraged by chronic fear, anxiety, depression that just seems to persist through all your best efforts to, to get rid of them. Uh, Maybe you've had a recent injury that has you feeling alone and isolated and by yourself. Whatever the case may be, please learn both from Paul and from Marcy, don't, don't suffer alone. Don't suffer on your own. Reach out to friends. Lean into and lean on the body of Christ. They're not going to take your suffering away, but they're going to help you endure suffering. So ask a friend to coffee or to lunch or to go on a walk and share what you need to share. Share the, su- the suffering, the burdens that you have. Um, don't be afraid to ask for prayer, whether that's in a one-on-one situation with a friend, um, whether that's in a small group that you're actually, you feel safe in, whether that's with me or with Maddie or with Eric. Lean on and lean into the body of Christ because Christians suffer alongside friends. And I'll, I'll say this before we move on. If, if Jesus needed his friends to stay up and to pray for him while he was experiencing suffering, how much more do we need the help and the support and the prayers of our friends? So let's, let's not neglect that. Let's not suffer alone or in silence, but let's suffer alongside friends in a safe, loving community in the body of Christ. And so as we suffer for God's word, as we suffer alongside friends, uh, one of the things that we realize is that ultimately we suffer in Christ. And so that's our last point, that a Christian suffers in the Lord. And uh, this is what Paul says throughout those last verses in our passage, verse 6 through 13 of chapter 3. Uh, but he especially highlights that in verses 7 and 8. And so just to give you a context, uh, it seems like Paul had been worried about the Thessalonians, and he was wondering, how are they doing? Um, and what we see in 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8, that Paul's greatest comfort came from hearing 
that in the midst of their suffering, the Thessalonians were actually standing fast in the Lord. So look at, look at verse 7 with me. He says to the Thessalonians, Paul says this, For this reason, brothers, or brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so for Paul, it made all the difference in the world uh, that his friends over in Thessalonica were suffering in Jesus. And for Paul, somehow their faith actually radiated all the more beautifully as they endured suffering in Jesus Christ, in the Lord. Um, there's, a, there's an older couple, probably in their early 60s, at uh, the church that Amanda and I were in, in Greenville, um, who tragically and unexpectedly lost their youngest daughter, who was 28 years old. And they actually just remembered, or, or I guess commemorated, her, her one-year anniversary last week of their daughter's passing. And she just, she just passed in her sleep. I still remember, I think it was a Wednesday morning, um, finding the news and just being shocked. Um, and I bring this couple up because they are, they are two, of the, like, two of the sweetest people you'd ever meet, two of the most generous people you'd ever meet. Amanda and I would have these conversations about them before uh, their daughter's passing. Like, if Christ is the cornerstone of the church, like, these, this couple was like one of those bedrock families, like, close to the cornerstone. That's how integral they were to the body of Christ. Just super loving, kind, solid believers. And um, over the past year, uh, they, they have endured what, I mean, what Paul is, is talking about. They have suffered, but suffered in Jesus Christ. Sure, they have struggled to believe. Sure, they've, they've, their days and their nights have been filled with tears. Sure, it's felt unbearable to them. But they have endured that suffering and walked with the Lord in the midst of that suffering. So much so that their faith has like just shined so beautifully in the midst of that. In the midst of that, that tragic loss and deep darkness of grief and sadness, their faith has just been radiant. And um, not only that, I, I had a chance to catch up with the mom uh, last week over the phone. And one of the things that she shared with me um, is that she actually she said, Andrew, I'm still surprised by how physical my suffering is. And by that she meant she was surprised by like how visceral, how tangible her loss still was and, and made her feel like it was still sapping her, sapping her of energy and strength. She was tired. She could, feel, she could feel the grief, the suffering, almost like a weight on her, on her body. It's so real. It's, it sticks to you so close. And, um, and what, that, like, what that highlighted for me is that that's, I mean, that's what suffering is. It's not abstract. It's not philosophical. Like it, it's real. It's tangible. It's visceral. And because it, it's all of those things, because it's so visceral, so tangible, so like gut level, we need something every bit as visceral and tangible and real to pull us out of it. You can't think your way out of suffering. You can't reason your way out of suffering. 
something or someone has to get in there and grab you and, and pull you out of suffering. And here's what I love about God's care for us or God's care for his people. In the midst of our suffering, he meets us in and through Jesus. And he doesn't just tell us about the good news of his grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness. He actually shows us in visible, visceral, tangible ways that he loves us, that he's going to uh, redeem us and save us. He's given us two signs in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two signs that are every bit of as real, every bit as tangible, every bit as visceral as our sufferings. He's given them to us so that they could be grace that we could feel and see and touch. And so the next time that you experience suffering and there's that voice that whispers in your ear, no one cares, no one sees you, you're alone. And, and you feel that sense of abandonment and isolation Remember your baptism. Remember, remember the water that either covered your head or covered your entire body. Remember the water of your baptism and hear that shout to you, you are an adopted child of God. You're not an orphan. You're not alone. God sees you. God loves you. God cares for you. And the next time that your pain and suffering seems more real to you than God's love, take communion. Take communion. And as you eat the bread and drink the wine or grape juice, um, say to yourself, as real as this bread and this wine is, to my senses, that's how real Jesus' suffering and death on the cross were for me. Let God minister to you in real, visceral, tangible ways at the Lord's table and through your own baptism. So we've seen that, that suffering is the mark of a Christian, that Christians suffer for God's word, Christians suffer alongside friends, and Christians suffer in the Lord. And before we close and wrap up, I want to go back to um, the problem of suffering, the problem that was such a big problem for Bart, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Um, the problem that became so personal to him that, that drove him to walk away from Jesus and the church, um, the problem that, that says that, you know, hey, Christians believe in this good, all-powerful God, but suffering exists, therefore we can't, believe, we can't believe in the Christian God. Because if he was all good and all-powerful, then surely he would get rid of suffering. So let's, get back, let's go back to that problem. And, and here's, here's what I'd say, I mean, Obviously, you could have you could talk about this for hours and still feel like you're not getting anywhere. But but I want I don't want to I don't want to close without saying this. Our our problems not solved by believing in no God, or by believing in some other God. The problem of suffering is not solved by believing there's no God, or by believing in some other God other than the God of the Bible. And here's why: because if you believe in no God. You're still, you've still got your suffering, but now it's me, like there's no, there's no meaning to it. There's no hope in it. You know, you suffer, you die, and that's it. There's no God. There's nothing after that. 
But then also believing in any other God other than the God of the Bible doesn't solve our problem either. Because, so I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't know suffering himself. I can't believe in a God who doesn't know what it's like to lose a child or even to suffer death itself. And only the God of the Bible has truly experienced suffering, and not just as some abstract philosophical theological concept, but in a real, tangible, visceral way. Because in Jesus, God himself, he suffered all the miseries of this life. He's even suffered death on the cross. And there at the cross, he experienced the worst suffering imaginable complete and utter separation and abandonment from God. And he suffered the worst that there is to suffer so that you and I wouldn't have to experience that suffering. Not only that, after Jesus died, he rose again, and three days, he rose again three days later, he ascended into heaven, and from heaven he has sent his spirit to be our comforter, to comfort us in the midst of our very real and very present suffering. He is is as close as close can get. And then finally, and this this is in the background of all of 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to turn every sorrow into gladness and to completely do away with suffering. Suffering won't be something that we have to endure anymore because he's going to get rid of it entirely. That's the hope that only the God of the Bible has to offer. And so, would you turn to him in the midst of your suffering? Would you entrust your suffering to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And as, um, as the 17th century pastor Samuel Rutherford has said, there's no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and our sores to him. So would we do that? Would we experience that sweet fellowship that there is to experience with Jesus by bringing all of our suffering to him, the one who truly knows what it's like and has done something about our suffering? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you um, for your word and for how honest it is and um, how... You, yourself, don't shy away from uh, the hardships of life, um, even suffering, and how um, out of love for us, you condescended to us. You came down from heaven in Jesus um, to be with us, to empathize with us, to even experience human suffering, and um, Lord, to save us, to save us from the suffering that our sins deserve. And um, I pray that that your grace, your love for us would be real and tangible um, in your word, uh, in your sacraments, um, and in, um, in the body of Christ. Uh, so would you, even the rest of tonight, minister to us by your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.